Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform uh, at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital uh, interview series we've been doing during the work from home period uh, to provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts who are leading investors, creators, and thinkers. Our goal with these talks is also to provide a platform for what we think are big, exciting, world-changing ideas, as well as great investment opportunities. And we're extremely excited today to welcome Alan Patrickoff to Salt Talks. Uh, with a 50-plus career year career in venture capital, Alan Patrickoff has been instrumental in growing the venture capital field from a base of high net worth individuals to its position today, which has broad institutional backing, as well as playing a key role in the essential legislative initiatives that have guided its evolution. Uh, Alan founded Apex Partners, a leading global private equity advisory firm, and then he co-founded Graycroft later on, which is a venture capital firm focusing on investments in the internet and mobile markets. His latest venture, as, as he's calling his third act, is a company called Primetime Partners, which is a seed and early stage venture capital fund investing in companies transforming the underserved and trillion dollar uh, global sector of the aging population. He's helped build and foster the growth of numerous major global companies, including, among others, American Online. We had Steve Case in an earlier Salt Talk, Office Depot, uh, Cadence Systems, Cellular Communications Incorporated, Apple Computer, which you may have heard of, uh, Four Systems, NTL, Intralinks, Audible, Axios, and Wondery. And we're very excited to learn more about his next chapter with Primetime Partners, as we mentioned, and what Alan refers to as the Silver Tsunami. A uh, reminder to our audience today, if you have any questions uh, for the great Alan Patrickoff, enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And conducting today's interview will be Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and, and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Anthony's also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. Alan, it's, uh, it's, it's great to have you on. We we're, we're, uh, really appreciate the time you're taking today. Um, and, you know, people get mad at me, my son in particular, when I ask these background questions, but I actually don't care because I, I find them fascinating. Uh, what is something we could learn about your background? It's not on Wikipedia. It's not something that's been written about you. Uh, maybe something about your parents. Maybe it's something about the way you grew up. Maybe it was the realization that you made that you were going to go into this storied career of entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, what, what do people not know about me? I don't know. I guess... From a very young age, I really uh, was entrepreneurial in my own way. I mean, I was brought up uh, in a middle-class background on the west side of New York. Uh, uh, I'd, I'd say lower middle-class. Uh, you know, we didn't have servants. We traveled by bus and subway. I didn't know what a taxi was till I was out of college. Uh, and uh, family trips were all by car, not by planes. Uh, uh, I sold the Saturday evening post standing by a subway, the 103rd Street subway stop with a, one of those bags around my shoulder at age six or seven. Uh, and during the war, I sold war bonds. I sold, uh, I collected scrap and newspapers for the war effort. Uh, uh, so I would say, you know, those were probably good indications that I was a hustler uh, uh, from very, very early on. And uh, uh, when I went to school, I, uh, I, went to, I went to Ohio State, not because I really intended to go to Ohio State. I got there by accident. Uh, I 
almost went to Brandeis, uh, but I, I panicked when Brandeis was like in its second or third year, and I went to one of those preliminary uh, college interviews, and when I walked in, everybody had black hats and long beards and long, long black uh, coats, and I said something, this wasn't right for me. Of course, Brandeis is a totally different place today, but it was, in those days, was very, very uh, ethnic, uh, and I just came home, put a label on my on my uh, trunk. In those days, you had a trunk; you didn't have a suitcase. Right. Uh, it was Railway Express, Railway Express, which became American Express. But in those days, it was you, the way you shipped everything around was not in the Amazon cartons, but in uh, in trunks. Uh, and I sent my trunk out to uh, Columbus, Ohio. Next day, got in the car and went out to Columbus and. I, even while I was at Columbus, I, I sold ties, I sold favors, I wrote for the Columbus Citizen, I uh, did uh, market research for the Brown Shoe Company. So I, I guess you'd say I started at a very early age, you know, trying, you know, like many of us, probably like you, you know, you had to do something to supplement your family's income, which was uh, limited. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll finish with the background when I tell you, when I came to New York, I had no job. There was no uh, recruitment effort at Ohio State. You know, if there was one, it was at Harvard, Yale, or Princeton. It certainly wasn't at Ohio State for a, an undergraduate. So my alternatives were going to uh, 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 Caterpillar Tractor in uh, uh, Des Plaines, Illinois, as I recall, or the National Bank of Detroit, or uh, to go work for AID down in Brazil. And uh, at the last second, I said, I, I got to go home. And I, I just wasn't, I, I don't think I would have made it in the, at Caterpillar. Uh, and I went to New York. And the way I got a job was I walked Wall Street because I knew I wanted to be on Wall Street. And I walked the street, literally. And in those days, you could get into the buildings, which you, you couldn't do today. It's a joke. And I would go to, into the, an elevator to the top floor go to the secretary, open the door and say, uh, any jobs available? Uh, and uh, that's honestly how I did it. And I'd go from the top floor down to the bottom floor. I started at 110 Wall Street. And fortunately, I got a job on the 35th floor of uh, 63 Wall Street uh, with a great firm. And so that's that's how it all started. And from there, it's you know been one great success after another, I have to say. Well, it's an, it's an amazing story. I think it's one of the reasons why we like each other so much. I, I had a paper out. I was making $35 a week at age 11. I was giving 20 to my mom, and I was keeping 15 for myself. And my first job uh, coming out of Tufts was at one Wall Street. So I had the same idea you did. I went to the Irving Trust Building. Yeah. I rode up to the 28th floor, and there was a, a law firm there called Hughes, Hubbard, and Reed. It was named after Charles Evans Hughes. And I asked them for a job that summer, and they they put me in the paralegal area. So uh, yeah, we got we got a lot in common that way. I, I, yeah, but Anthony, I bet you what was my first my first salary because I you could believe yeah. it or not, people don't realize you could go to Social Security and ask for a printout of every year in which you contributed to Social Security. So my first year was 1955. I made 55 dollars a week. So that was what 2700 dollars a year or whatever right. multiplied. My, well, I, 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 I was more fancy pants than you. They, they, the guy offered me $8 an hour, Alan, being who I am. I said, could you make it 10? 
goes, what are you crazy? I said, yeah, please. I'm, I need the money. I had to, had to pay off money. all that school debt. What's that? That was, was good money in 1986. You know, I worked on the Continental Airlines merger with People's Express. I spent the whole summer of 1986 in that office working on that merger. But uh, I want to go to your was early Freddie, Was Freddie Laker around then? Yes, absolutely. I, yeah. I remember meeting Freddie Laker going yeah. out to his hangar out in New Jersey. Big cavernous hangar. For those who remember, Freddie Laker was like the guy who started, really started cheap. He, he really started the whole concept of mass transit in the air. And uh, Frank Lorenzo, you may remember Frank, he's right. living up in Nantucket now. He was running Continental Airlines at the time, and he bought People's Express, uh, which is the reason why United Airlines has all those hubs over in Newark. So well, I, I worked on I that. Mentioned. I remember my famous story of, of Freddie Laker was I went to meet him in his corner office, and I said, something. somehow we got into the idea of board meetings. And he said, well, I have board meetings. He said, I'll show you how I have a board meeting. He goes out into the hallway, a long, remember it was a hanger. And he calls out whatever his partner's one. And I won't do it. He screams out, hey, hey, Jimmy. And Jimmy comes out of the hall, the other end of the hall. He said, let's have a board meeting. <laughs> I always remember that's that was Laker Airlines board meetings for well, in the hallway. There you go, the true symbol of entrepreneurship, right? It's, a, it's an amazing story. But uh, so you're one of the pioneers. I mean, you had this, um, you've had this amazing life, and you've always been able to see around a corner. So take us back to the early part of your career, venture capital, private equity. What were you thinking in those early days uh, about directionally where you were going in your career and and that industry specifically? Well, my father had once said, when my father was a stockbroker in his later career, he, the only real guidance he gave me is, is always be a uh, buyer, not a seller of security of investments. In other words, not be a stockbroker was really was saying. And uh, so my career has always pretty much been on the buy side. I mean, I was worked for a development capital firm. I worked for a, uh, a investment uh, counseling firm, as they were called then, like Scudder, Stevens and Clark or. Know, fidelity is today much bigger than private uh, management, and uh, and then I went ran a family man uh, family's money, and then I uh, worked for uh, a guy named Ben Heineman and Mickey Newman. Mickey Newman was uh, the son of Jerry Newman. Jerry Newman was the partner of Graham Newman, which uh, who was the great professor at Columbia, who wrote the, fam the famous book that everybody in Wall Street if they haven't read, should read. And I'm shocked at the number of people today who haven't read it and who work for uh, one of the firms I have, uh, which is called Security Analysis by Graham and Dodd. Sure. I think first edition is worth, you have to pay three three to $5,000 to get the first edition. But uh, it, the firm was Graham Newman and I was involved with that. And uh, uh, I had a lot of experience with families and I saw that families managed their big portfolios of stocks. You know, we're talking about the Whitney's and the Rockefellers and the Phipps's and many, many other families that you would never have heard of, including the family I worked for, which was the Gottesman family who made their fortune in the paper business. And they would do private investments, but they didn't know what they were doing. Someone, Andre Mayer, who was head of Lazard, or Gus Levy, who was head of Goldman Sachs, or uh, John Loeb from Loeb Rose would call up and say, I'm putting you in for 500,000 in this, or I'm putting you in for a million in this, or 200 of that. It was an old boys kind of club. Uh, and uh, and family offices were, were putting up money for that. And uh, 
and we did our share. And I was the one, because I loved that, that became the person who ran that file drawer with all these private investments. And it was while I was there that I, uh, we made an investment in New York Magazine. And we made an investment in another company called Datascope Corporation. Uh, New York Magazine, I, at you know the tender age of 30 something, became president. Armadur from Loeb Roads was chairman, uh, but Clay Felker was the key guy who built, built New York Magazine. And uh, uh, we started a company and uh, I got the taste of really what it was like to be on the front line of running a, running a business. And uh, uh, in the case of Datascope, I, uh, I, uh, was, uh, it was a medical electronics company, which we started with $50,000 on a, on a kitchen table uh, with a very clever technology for uh, cardiac monitoring. And I said, this is much more interesting than buying IBM and General Motors and international paper stock and having it go up or down two or three or five points in a day. And no one could really tell you except some psychological event that happened, some extraneous event, someplace in the world would affect that price. Uh, I also went at that time into a firm called Lynn Broadcasting on, all on behalf of Central sure. National. So I said, you know, there's really a business out there to manage high net worth families, private investments who aren't like the Phipps or the Whitney's or the Rockefellers who had their own private investment activities. And so I started a business in 1970 called Alan Patrick Gott Associates, which became Apex. Uh, many years later, we changed the name to Alan Patrick Gott Associates International because we were in 12 countries at that point uh, and uh, started managing investments for private families that of their non-public securities on a very modest basis. I, I forget I think we, I was a retainer at $25,000 a year and 10% of the, the carry was 10%, not 20. And, uh, you know, that gradually grew and got bigger. And uh, eventually we started taking in institutions and uh, got bigger and bigger. We started out as a, our first fund was two and a half million. And when I left uh, APAX in, two, in the, there's no exact date. I, because I was in Apex's office until about 2008 or nine, but I uh, physically, but I, I decided around 2002 after the bubble that uh, we had become too much of a private equity firm. We'd gotten so big. Our last fund had been, I think 10 billion uh, from two and a half million to 10 billion. We weren't doing the same kind of investments. So I spent, three years helping the World Bank pro bono and the IFC in, in looking at uh, small and medium-sized enterprise development around the world, primarily in Africa. So I traveled to a lot of countries. And uh, around 2006, I said, I, I, this is not satisfying enough for me. I was a 71, 72. I said, I want to go back in the venture capital business, pure venture capital. And I started Graycroft. Uh, which is a pure venture capital firm. We are not a private equity firm. So far, it is, the temptation is enormous to get bigger and bigger. Graycroft is now, and it's, uh, I started out with a small fund of uh, 75 million, which was small. And our most recent fund, we, we really kept ourselves constricted to will be uh, under 300 million, which may sound large, but it's really small. For the way funds have grown, we could be a lot, lot, lot larger. And we've had, six funds, 
and uh, three growth funds, which takes the, the second phase after the early stage uh, A and B rounds. And uh, uh, but have been consistent and uh, you know sticking with trying to uh, invest in companies that are early stage of their their development, whether they were startups or you know in, in growth rounds. And so been an exciting career, I'll have to say. Yeah, no, a- amen. And 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 I think your career is just getting started. We're going to go to the silver tsunami here in a second, but I want to ask this question before I go in that direction. Uh, you have this wonderful knack. It's one thing to read a PowerPoint presentation or a business idea, but it's another thing to understand that you have a management team that can intersect with that idea and execute the idea. And so we have a lot of young people on this uh, Salt Talk listening. What are some of those qualitative and quantitative factors and gut instinct that you bring to the table to see that opportunity at such an early stage in the business process? Well, in all fairness, in the in the venture, the pure venture area, in the startup area, you really don't have a lot of numbers to go for. And there's a little bit of this. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you can't avoid it. So right. it has to be based less on numbers and more on the people. And we've learned consistently that people who start businesses who have been in previous businesses that are similar and that have left them to do something similar and, and more importantly, have attracted people from that previous activity to join them is a very high indicator of success because those are the people, they know more about this leadership than we could possibly know. And they're betting with their careers as we're, and we're, we're investing with our money, which is fungible and, you know, to a great extent, except for what we have invested in our own funds is other people's money. And while it hurts and we are fiduciaries, uh, somehow that's a very high predictability of success. And uh, the second is, uh, is someone who really understands the economics of the business that they're going into even though they can't prove it at that point, but they understand that, you know, you have to, you have to make a profit. <laughs> uh, at some point, a company has to have a bottom line. And a lot of companies have lost sight of that today. But if you don't start, if you just start out of the theory that all you have to do is build revenues and, and, and they will come, uh, I don't think that makes sense. I think people have to understand the pure, the, the, factors that go into making a bottom line profit and how long that will take and how much capital that would take, I think is a critical aspect. Uh, I think understanding the market they're going into, not what we call, uh, they use the word TAM, the total address market, but they think of the total address market as being that big instead of thinking of it as this big, which is the real market they're going after. I think someone who really understands the size of the market they're going into themselves. So if you if you take those combinations of people, product, market, and and are you investing on a risk reward relationship that justifies taking the risk? And sure. I say all of this because it's very important at the beginning, and at the beginning, you don't have as many answers or proof points on that point that I brought up. But most critically, when you go 
to the follow-on rounds, and this is where it really becomes important. I think it's very, very important to have the discipline to say, were the, did the people develop as I expected? Did the product make progress in this at, at the time frame that they said it was going to make? Is the is the market that I thought was there, is it really there or has it been taken away by someone else who beat us to the punch? Sure. And is the round we're going into, does it justify in a potential reward based on comparables, the risk we're taking and making that financial investment? And I think, in my opinion, that there's a, unfortunately, Today, we have too many companies out there, and I'm not going to name them because everybody knows them, that have gone along through multiple, multiple rounds of financing uh, and are not yet near profitability and yet can continue to generate, raise new capital that are not, don't, do not exercise that discipline of, of, uh, of understanding that at some point shareholder capital cannot totally finance a company forever. At yep. some point, it's, you know, where the emperor's clothes. Right. Well, I think it's well said. I, I, I want to I switch over to Primetime Partners, which is your new venture capital firm. And obviously, it's targeting older Americans, early stage startups. Uh, um, you're calling it the silver tsunami, um, which... Uh, I guess no one's getting their hair dyed like me, obviously, because, you know, I mean, why would you call it the silver tsunami if you had hair dye involved? But what is the investment thesis of primetime and why are you doing this now? Don't tell me you have my, normally have my color hair. You know, my my hair is whiter than your hair, actually. But it oh looks, my God. It looks oh. terrible on television. I told Sean Hannity, look at Sean Hannity now. He's got so much snow on the roof. I told him, come on. <laughs> but I mean, you look, you look very distinguished with that hair. I still have that baby face out. I, I, I went, uh, my barber once about 15, 20 years ago, tried to talk me into, you know, lightning, lightning. I said, once you start, you can't stop. I mean, it's impossible. It's only going to go one way. So I gave up. Well, I'm, I'm going the way, I'm going the way of Joan Rivers. Let's just put it that way. But I, I want to go back to silver tsunami. I want to go back. I want to go more than you do. Let me say, I have never in my 50 years in this business have been more excited about anything I have done. Uh, I, I came to this, honestly, because my wife has Alzheimer's and she's had it for 11 years. And the last three years have been pretty brutal in the sense of 24-hour caregivers. And she's lost all the functions that people have, though she's still at home. And she'll be at home till the end. But when I'm sorry about that. that yeah, during during that process, uh, I have gotten to know what problems are for people with chronic diseases. I've gotten to meet a lot of doctors, a lot of uh, modalities, and looked at a lot of technologies, and look at all the support structures you need from the standpoint of caregiving, from the standpoint of feeding, from the standpoint of changing your house around, uh, all those things. And they're not just for people with chronic diseases. Oh God knows there are plenty of those around, not just with Alzheimer's, but all other kinds of diseases, whether it's, you know, hip replacements that never repair, or you see the people all around with walkers and wheelchairs, they have, they're not just Alzheimer's victims. Uh, but people in general getting older, and what people, what people, what maybe some of your 211 people on this 
call, don't realize it, the fastest growing segment of the population today are the people over 60. In this country, in China, and in uh, Japan, and in Europe, not in the Middle East. And these people all need different things than they did when they were part of the millennial generation. And there's been, you know, ironically, while it's the fastest, and it's, I think it's like 24% of the population, but been in the fastest growing part, uh, I, I, you know, I don't want to be put on the carpet, but I believe less than 10% of the marketing dollars are spent against this, this segment of the population, which actually has the most money to spend on products and services and everything else you can think of. And uh, they've been neglected, honestly. Uh, by the same token, venture capitalists were all terrific people, but you don't see many 60-year-olds walking in for financings into a venture capital firm. Uh, it just doesn't happen. Uh, so uh, it's a, it, it, I, as I looked at this market, and I also read more than one study. I actually read three studies, which said that 60-year-old entrepreneurs were twice as successful in starting up businesses those who are 30. And that really shook me. These were not just statements. These were full academic studies. And uh, you can refute it or not, but they, they exist. You can get a hold of them yourself. And the reason was, you know, someone at 60 has a, law, a bigger Rolodex. He has more battle scars, or she has more battle scars. They know more about the industries. They have more contacts. Uh, and if they want to, in my opinion, if they want to start a company that's in the similar business and they have the energy that I have and they want to... Uh, do it again, they are a darn good bet at putting money behind them because they know where to find the people to work for them. They know where to find the customers. They have the relationship with the customers, the probability of their success. And it's it's logical, but people have not thought that way. Uh, they'd rather back, including, you know, me and Venture and, and Greycroft and Apex. We, you know, we'd rather back a 22-year-old who has no Rolodex, who has no experience in the business, but has you know, lots of fire in their eyes and excitement and attracts a lot of other young people and, and a lot of them are successful. But the fact is that older people are successful. So uh, I had been thinking about this and my son came to me in November uh, and he said, you know, Dad, Abby Levy, who was the founding president of, of Thrive Global, which was Ariana Huffington, is her uh, latest company, company after, uh, after the Huffington Post, which I was an investor in, and I was an investor in Thrive Global. And Ariel, uh, Abby was there for two years. And when she left, I was very, very disappointed. She went to SoulCycle. Uh, and I, uh, I didn't keep in touch with her except to see her. She stayed on the board. And I see her at board meetings, but we never talked about anything. And my son came to me and said, you know, Dad, Abby has been spending the last year focusing on this wellness and uh, aging population. She's got all the thoughts you're doing, but she's going to do something about it. So we got together two days later and together with a uh, firm on the New York Stock Exchange called Welltower, which owns 1,600 senior living facilities. Uh, they became the strategic partner, which all it meant was they would try out ideas that we might find in one of their homes where, because they were looking for innovation and uh, they became, in effect, our partner with no economics, just purely uh, uh, interested in what might come out of a, a fund like ours. And uh, 
we said, let's go for it. And we, we were all ready to raise money in January and COVID hit. And we sat around and they, uh, we said, let's go for it now, whether or not there's COVID. And in 45 days, we raised, uh, we filed with uh, over 30 million. And uh, in the course of the last couple of weeks, we've had a bunch more investors who proactively have contacted us and we've capped it out. It's going to be a small fund. But I will tell you, we have a pipeline now of 80 companies. We've invested in four. Congratulations. And it's, it's, people don't realize this. And I'm hoping there'll be more venture firms started up in this area because there are a lot of people around who are got lots of good ideas, whether it's in nutrition. Now, I'm not talking, we're not investing in pharmaceuticals or drugs or, or senior housing, but all the products and services, you just don't think of the things that change as people get older. And if Anthony's going to live, I'm going to live to 114. Anyone on this program who knows me knows that I've been saying this for 10 years. I got that. I, I, I had that as the under for you, Patrick. Off. I had no, that no, as the I under. Said, I'm not, uh, people change it. They say it's 150. I said, no, you made a mistake. It's 114. I'm not changing. It was based on a, on a speech I had heard at, at, at uh, Mount Sinai about 10 or 15 years ago about the probability uh, it, that age gets offset by all the things that happen during life. And I just heard recently that they are now saying that you could live to 120, but I'm not changing, 114. Well, if you're going to live to 114 or 100, read the obituaries every day. Notice all the people who are over 100 uh, were living. Those people are going to need lots. They're going to need lots more of them. We're going to need lots of different things. And they're going to need you know, new companies to create to service them. I mean, a, a company just got sold yesterday called Livongo, which got sold for $17 billion to uh, Teladoc or Tele, uh, yeah, but one of the telemedicine companies, which is in the food area of feeding older people. Uh, you know, you see on television every day, a place for mom. Uh, yep. I, I don't know how big it is, but it's big. Uh, there are all kinds of ideas happening, and I am totally excited. Abby and I are having a great time. We're recruiting. If anyone has healthcare venture experience, we're looking for someone right now in a principal or senior associate role. Uh, it's a wide open field. I mean, there are we found we have been able to find two or three other small venture firms. We want to be the leader in this field and. Uh, by doing the way we did it, announcing the fund uh, on a on an embargoed basis on July, whatever it was, two weeks ago, uh, we ended up with coverage in every media, major stories, uh, and uh, we intended to do that. And I intended to do just what I'm doing now to get on a soapbox and say, I'm 85. If I can start my third business at 85. I started my second business at 72. There's no reason why other people can. So we're hoping we're going to invest in products, services, and technology. And in parallel, if we can find some older entrepreneurs, older meaning, you know, they want to start a second career, 55, 60, 65. We'd like to find a few of those that don't have to be servicing the older community, but they want to do the same thing again. Uh, and they have the energy and and brains to do it. Well, we, we, we know it's going to be successful. We wish you great success. I want to turn it over to my colleague, 
John Dorsey. Uh, we've got a ton of questions that are populating. And so go ahead, John. Uh, let's take some questions from the audience. Yeah, thank you, Anthony. And maybe you have a business idea, Anthony. I know you're in the, the senior citizen category, so maybe you have a couple new business ideas you might want to well, launch. Well, mine are all going to be in beauty and Botox, John. Okay. You, you, you okay? Go ahead. Well, keep going. Anthony, Anthony, don't think those aren't categories. I tr- tr- trust me. I'm a, I'm a I'm a big consumer, Mr. Patrickov. I'm a big consumer. Well, uh, Alan, thanks again for joining us. We had a couple questions about. You've had some commentary recently regarding the big tech giants and how they're sort of utilities that are in need of some form of regulation. Um, there's a great book out recently by David Day, and who's actually speaking on Salt Talks next week called Monopolize that covers this exact subject. Could you talk further about you know, these recent congressional hearings that we've seen and also your views on big tech and how we allow them to grow and innovate, but we don't allow them to be destructive in a way that some monopolies have been throughout the course of American history? Well, I'm glad to have this opportunity. I have spoken out the past year on this subject. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I'm sure you, many of you read the, the book Zucked, uh, uh, which was by someone from venture business who had been at Facebook and investor in Facebook and profited from it, but told the reality. Let's face the reality. The four companies under attack, if you will, Facebook, Google, uh, Amazon, and uh, Apple is thrown in there, uh, have, an enor- have accumulated an enormous amount of data. And every time they make an acquisition, they get more data. And that data is very, very valuable. It, it, it knows that all of us are right now on the SALT conference line on Zoom. It knows where you're going to be buying something, where you're selling something, what you're reading, what, you're, what, what, what sites you're going up to. And they have been able to use that to, in a, in a, in a I hate the word use the monopolistic, but in a fashion that has given them a substantial advantage over anyone who wants to compete with them. And I, you know, we've all heard the argument from particularly uh, Google, uh, but you know Facebook as well, of saying and Amazon, where you know you can put your product. They're handling third-party sellers, but the fact is they've come out with their own products that compete with these sellers. They have the ability to give priority listing to it. Uh, they have the ability to uh, control the ad market now. I mean, I don't know. Those on this line have had companies <laughs> where overnight Google will change the algorithm. And all of a sudden, your traffic go down by ten or twenty percent. <laughs> and where I, when I grew up, I grew up on the basis that if someone had control over something that uh, where you could not avoid it, that's called a utility. I mean, that's why utilities are regulated. That's why the railroads are regulated. That's why the phone companies were regulated. That's why we had. Uh, monopoly laws in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, and I'm not antiquated, but those laws applied to people who were combining oil, steel, trains to raise prices, and they monopolized industries. Today, we have a different kind of monopoly. It's data. And there has to be found a way to make this data available on a ubiquitous basis, in my opinion, so that everybody has access to it 
And if it's accumulated by someone, they're entitled to make money from that data and make, but making it available and create a more level playing field. If not, their data accumulation builds up by the nanosecond. And it's inevitable that these companies have to get stronger and stronger and stronger uh, as they as they stay alive. And uh, they can use every argument uh, in the book. I think that uh, I'm encouraged by the congressional hearings now that uh, I never can pronounce his name, Cicilito, uh, uh, who is a congressman, I think, from Rhode Island, who has led the fight uh, uh, and done very well at it, by the way. Uh, he had the four uh, kings in uh, a couple of weeks ago for a hearing. Uh, I mean, it's ridiculous to have a five-hour hearing for this subject, but that's what there was allocated. Uh, there's a lot of work that's been done in the background. Uh, there are committees that have been formed. There are nonprofits. The Open Market Institute, has, uh, which was originally uh, run by Sarah Miller, now is spun off into another activity. Uh, and her successor is doing a great job of preparing position papers. I think it is appropriate that the government is looking into this. There's no other way we're going to come out with answers. I am not speaking out in favor of breaking off the companies. I, I, I honestly, I think it's a very tough job at this point. But uh, when, when uh, every day, you know, we saw yesterday Fitbits being bought, uh, more data, uh, I saw Facebook bought a company called Brainwaves. Now that now now we're going to have control of the brain, we don't have control of enough elements of our eyes and and uh, touch and everything else. So I say I am I I I want to make one disclaimer. I do not think that any of these people that we're referring to, uh, Sergey Olary or or, or uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, or certainly not not Steve Jobs when he was there had any thought about being monopolists, about controlling power. Uh, it's an inexorable growth that where they're allowed to buy 50 and 60 companies and, uh, and, and combine the benefits of some of these companies. And it all gets down to data. Take away the data from them, put it in a data depository, repository, and let everybody bid on it. And it'll be a different business, I think. And I, you know, it's hard to make this argument because the everybody likes to get cheaper, faster, cheaper. And you know, when you have an Amazon package in front of your door every day, uh, who doesn't like to get it that way? And and when you, uh, if we have a discussion here before we got on the phone, uh, Anthony asked me about someone uh, whether he was alive or dead. And I, I couldn't quite get to it. Uh, but what do I do? I go to Google. I mean, that's where the, that's where it is. I mean, it's they've got ninety two percent of the search traffic. So when you have that dependence on one thing, that is, a, my opinion, a utility. And if you're a utility, you should be regulated. So I want to follow up on that comment you made about Amazon. And and we've had a couple of our tech speakers, Steve Case, uh, Chamath Palihapitiya, talk about how technology is improving the world, but it's also creating a deflationary super cycle whereby goods and services are cheaper, but it's also cannibalizing jobs for low and middle income Americans. Could you 
you know, talk about that a little bit. Do you agree with them? And, and what do you think absolutely. the long-term impact Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, why do you think all, all these retail stores are going out of business? I mean, they can't compete. It's impossible. They can't compete with the pricing and they can't, and, and you know, the as, as Amazon proved, you know, they didn't have to make money for a long time because shareholders kept feeding them with money. I mean, and uh, they fed them to the point where they were able to put out a lot of other people out of business with their low prices. and. Uh, you know, prices are not quite as low as they used to be. And they have a way of, they've got their formulas of knowing how to price merchandise. Uh, it's, it's a, those are tough people to compete against, both for selling ads and right. for and selling merchandise and for delivery. We have a few questions about- Apple, In the case of Apple, it's a toll booth for an app. Yep. And you gotta, you wanna go through the toll booth, that's it. We have an increasing- uh, percentage of their profits are coming from their services sector and they're trying to keep people cap captive in that ecosystem. Yeah. And of course, Amazon have able, able to start AWS. I mean, <laughs> just uh, another uh, nail in the, in the coffin. So we've had several questions from members of our Asian audience about, you know, whether you look at that market at all, silver e-shoppers, especially in the Asian markets are very strong. And are you seeing commerce solutions that are tailored to that market? And you know, part of that question that I'm sort of combining into one is, you know, Japan has an older population. China has things like mandated retirement ages for very successful executives who are then going to have extra time and, and money on their hands. Are, are you looking at the Asian markets at all, or is this more of a U.S.-based play? Well, we're, we're, we're the new guy on the block. We're trying to build a position for ourselves in the industry. Uh, uh, I will say that one of the companies we looked at, which was early on, has been in the sensing area, which is a key area of remote sensing for conditions that exist in senior living facilities or at home. And this particular company was sell, was a U.S. company, but was selling in Japan because the healthcare reimbursements for uh, this type of activity was so much greater because the demand was so much greater in Japan than here. Uh, we would be certainly open to any other country, to a, a, an investment that fit our criteria. Although, you know, we are both in New York, although we're both in our homes, uh, on Zoom, uh, uh, we're more likely to have a portfolio that has a preponderance of US companies, but I definitely would not leave out the possibility of having a European investment or a Japanese investment, uh, even possibly a Chinese investment, but I, we would certainly, only do that with a partner. We, we would not do that on our own. On our own. Alan, we're going we're gonna to leave you with one last question. Uh, uh, it is a political one, if you don't mind. I know you've been very active in the Democratic Party. Uh, what, you know, what are your thoughts on a Biden presidency? What, you, we, again, you know, I don't want to make it overly political, but I'm just curious because of your wisdom and your life experience. Is a Biden presidency good for the markets? Is it good for venture capital? You know, Anthony, you and I have had a very nice relationship since we met at the floor of the convention. God knows how many years ago now, I can't count the years. Yep. Uh, and uh, uh, I have been a strong Democratic supporter. Uh, I, have, I have got to believe that Joe Biden is going to be good for the economy, I, 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 but even ahead of the economy, I've got to believe he's going to be good for the country. 
I, I, I believe, I, I can't avoid being political. I, be, I believe the things that have been done to our democratic system in these last several years are, have been so devastating and, and, and are, by the way, accelerate, we're at an accelerated pace. I am deathly aware, I'm sorry, deathly concerned with uh, the November to January period this year of what further damage can be done. But I believe that Joe Biden is a solid, I know him, I've known him for a long you, time. You, you think Joe Biden will win this? I, I'm, well, no, you're not allowed to be overly confident, but I'm convinced that the country in general, based on everything I read and see, is getting to the position I am that, that we can't continue with a, with a Trump presidency for another four years, or we're gonna decimate all the institutions we've got. Let me give you an example. When they, uh, when the new administration, if the new administration takes over, you have normally four thousand positions to fill that are political positions from cabinet level yep. down to Schedule C employees. Uh, people don't realize that. I mean, and I don't know the facts, but my sense is that uh, no more than half or two thirds of those positions had ever been filled. Yeah, it's about two thirds, yep. Two thirds by the, yep. thank, by the Trump, my guess is not wrong. And of those two thirds, how many of them have been changed multiple times through resignations or firings? And so, so a new administration coming in has an enormous challenge to in effect, fill those positions and fill them with adequate people and to for those who haven't been in government before to get trained again yep. with a cadre who really perhaps is not in a position to train other people. Uh, uh, I mean, it's just, it's, it's going to be an amazing channel, but, but I want to, I want to finish this political thing with one thing. The market doesn't like surprises. I have been shocked by the market we've had in the last three or four years under Donald Trump, because it has been a, a good market, a good stock market in the face of daily surprises. And that confounds me because investors like to plan. They like to plan. They like to be able to project. They like to, they want consistency. And uh, I believe in a Biden uh, presidency, they are gonna be, able, we're not gonna have a rascable person who just don't know what's gonna happen when you open up the papers or listen to the uh, right. tweet overnight. And I think that that stability of, of people around, of he and the kind of people that he'll have around him. And I know the big concern in Wall Street is tax rates. And uh, you know, I read the uh, uh, op-ed this past week about the specifics and you know, concern about the, uh, the uh, ordinary income rate going up to the levels they're talking about. Uh, I, I believe that's why we have a Congress. I think everything will be moderated. Uh, I think there's people who have made extraordinary amounts of money recognize that they probably have gotten tax benefits that were excessive in view of the world where it's at today and income inequality and, and all the other issues in the world. And I think most people I know who've been successful financially have a sense of responsibility are not totally selfish. And oh, believe, absolutely. And believe absolutely. that there's got to be fairness in the system. And 
uh, if fairness also brings a uh, more equanimity to the populace, if we have a, a people who feel uh, feel that things are fair, there are there, there's a evil play, equal equal playing field. I think that will have an impact on on it will permeate itself down to every level, and I think there will be more concern for caregiving. You know, one of the things about Joe's program is his CARES Act, which he which he wants to deal with uh, ha people having to care for their elderly parents, having to care for their children, uh, all the issues that are really front and center and are going to, I don't mean to bring it back to prime time, but certainly going to, I hope, benefit prime time in a way. I, sure. I, I have nothing to do with it, but I, I think it's, it augurs well for uh, people being concerned about their parents. I mean, you're concerned about your parents today. Everybody on this line is. Uh, and the ones who are older are concerned about themselves. Yeah. Oh, no, amen. No, listen, I, we got we got to look after each other. But Alan, you had an amazing career. You're a great friend. Uh, you're a great American. We didn't get a chance to go into all of your charitable giving, which has also been amazing. And uh, uh, it's a great honor for me to have you in my life. And thank you for sharing your time. Uh, and I, 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 you have to accept my invitation to come back because I understand that you have written a book. Uh, which is about somewhat of a memoir, but also somewhat of an emotion about what you see in the country and uh, our lives today. And so uh, you have to promise me you'll come back so we can talk about that book. When as it's soon published. as the publisher publishes it, agrees okay. to publish All right, well, amen. Okay, well, that's a deal. And uh, stay safe and healthy. And I look forward to uh, watching your third generative success unfold here. And meeting up in person at your favorite club. Yeah, amen. Exactly. God bless. We've got to get back into the city, you and me.